0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. If I asked you to, I reckon you could probably picture the face of Tutankhamun, his glittering gold and blue death mask. But while the pharaoh's treasures may have seared his image into our minds, I'd also guess that many of you listening wouldn't be able to tell me how long ago exactly Tutankhamun lived or what was happening in Egypt when he came to the throne. That's why in this episode, we're travelling back more than 3,000 years to Egypt's 18th dynasty, the era of Tutankhamun, to uncover stories of immense power and eye-watering wealth, instability, corruption and religious revolution. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, And in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the centenary of Howard Carter's great discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb by exploring the iconic pharaoh's life, death and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and re-examine the contents of his tomb to investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can reveal about ruling, living and dying in the ancient world. Today, to tell us more about the fascinating time that Tutankhamun lived in, I spoke to two experts on Egypt's 18th dynasty. Professor Joyce Tildesley is an Egyptologist based at the University of Manchester, whose books include The Pharaohs and Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, which is coming out this October. Guy de la Bédière is an archaeologist, historian and classicist who you might recognise from Channel 4's Time Team. His most recent book is Pharaohs of the Sun, How Egypt's Despots and Dreamers Drove the Rise and Fall of Tutankhamun's Dynasty. So today we're going to be putting the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb into context. We're going to be heading back to the 14th century BCE to take a look at Egypt in the age of the boy king. What were some of the defining characteristics of this period of Egyptian history?
1: Well, Tutankhamun belongs to what we call the 18th dynasty of ancient Egypt, which is part of the new kingdom. But these are actually quite modern ideas. Tutankhamun himself would not have understood the idea of the 18th dynasty because he wouldn't have counted in dynasties. He would have seen himself as being part of a long line of kings that stretched right the way back, not just to the first king of Egypt, but to the gods who ruled Egypt at the beginning of time. So it's a modern idea, but actually it fits very well with the history because the 18th dynasty starts with a period of um, battle. Well, the Egyptians expel foreign rulers from the Nile Delta and consolidates into a time of wealth and empire and power. And that, that's the world that Tutankhamun was born into.
2: Tutankhamun lives around a thousand years before Alexander the Great. And he is himself coming something like 1400 years, 1500 years from the time we count Egyptian dynastic history as starting. So it's a phenomenally long period, and as Joyce says, it is punctuated by uh, remarkable phases. We've referred to the New Kingdom. There is, of course, the Old Kingdom, which most people understand as the time when the pyramids are. That is followed by something we very prosaically call the the First Intermediate Period. And I love the idea of Egyptians walking around thinking, I live in the time of the First Intermediate Period, which is a a remarkable idea, followed by the Middle Kingdom. Now, the Middle Kingdom is... I suppose you might almost call it the equivalent of our medieval period. That is when a lot of the grander traditions of Egyptian society become even more fully established, because that's something the New Kingdom often harks back to. But we have to remember that after the 18th dynasty, there's well over around another thousand years of Egyptian dynastic history, followed by the Ptolemaic pharaohs, who were established by, uh, first of all, Alexander the Great, and then, of course, the Roman rule of Egypt. So it's just a phase of about 250 years, right in the middle of a very, very long panorama of history.
0: Hopefully that's given you a better sense of this vast swathe of time that we casually refer to as Ancient Egypt. And where exactly Tutankhamun and the 18th dynasty he belonged to fit within that. It can be quite hard to wrap your head around, but we're talking about events that happened more than 3,000 years ago here. So how do historians know what was going on in a period that was simply so long ago? What sources have survived down the millennia?
1: I think it's quite surprising to non-Egyptologists when they realise actually how little concrete evidence we have and how much guesswork and assumption, um, educated guesswork, it's not random guesswork, but um, we're lacking a great deal of information. What we have, we have monumental texts which are left to us by the kings which they will inscribe say on temple walls or on steely stone slabs dotted around Egypt you will tell us their history mainly of battles they don't tell us private things and of course they're heavily biased they tell us the story of Egypt that the kings want us to know so we they can't be entirely taken you know as literal truth We have archaeology, of course, but there's less archaeology than we would like, and a lot of it is tomb-based. We have elite tombs, where elite courtiers, those who could afford to build a tomb, might tell their biography on the tomb wall. Again, heavily biased and aimed at achieving a good afterlife. And we have random writings. We have fictional stories. We have instructions to young men how to behave. We have some legal documents. We have all that sort of thing. But what we don't have is the equivalent of our diaries, if you like. We don't have eyewitness accounts of what was happening at the time that we can actually totally believe. So we are piecing things together.
2: Yes, and there's no equivalent, for example, uh, from later in ancient history where you have analysts or historians using records. Somebody like Tacitus, who wrote his annals in the first century AD, was able to look back to extensive Roman archives. Now, that sort of thing simply doesn't exist in Egypt. What we also have is a very unbalanced record. So earlier in the 18th dynasty, for example, we have a man called Ames, son of Ibana. And this is a man who's a very senior soldier under the first three or so pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. And in his tomb, there is a record of of his military exploits. And of course, like all these people, like all these Egyptian bigwigs, they paint themselves as the epicentre of the king's attention. They are the most exclusively successful person. They never mention anybody else. So he's on one hand a very valuable source, but it is all about himself and, and, and his loyalty to the kings and the gifts the kings give him and everything else. So that's a very good example of the kind of record we, we occasionally get, but it's there's nothing much better than that. And I might just throw in, I know you've talked about Tutankhamun's tomb. Something that astonishes many people, if you draw their attention to it, is that really there's virtually no historical information from Tutankhamun's tomb at all. There are sporadic bits and pieces that might tell you about relationships. There's no papyrus from Tutankhamun's tomb iterating what happened during his reign
0: any historian working on this era of history has to be a pretty canny detective, as well as a critical, or even cynical, reader of sources. But from the limited material that is available, what can we say about this era that Tutankhamun lived in? Are there any hallmarks of royal rule in the 18th dynasty that we can identify?
1: The king of Egypt had to be, was expected to be the same as all kings who had gone before. He would look the same. This was very important. In real life, of course, he didn't necessarily look the same or even she didn't necessarily look the same, but it was important when presented to the people that he looked the same, wearing the same kilt, performing the same actions, wearing the same crowns. I would say that the king's most important duty was to maintain mart. Mart is a concept that's very difficult for us to understand today but it's the opposite of chaos. It's a combination of justice and the status quo and things being as they should be. To do this, the king was in charge of defeating enemies, ensuring that the gods were worshiped, ensuring that the the law was obeyed within Egypt, and he was the head of the civil service, he was the head of the army, he was the head of the priesthood of all the cults, technically. He couldn't do this himself. It was important that he did this because the gods of Egypt craved Mart. Um, they wanted it, so as long as the king could show March to the gods, um, all would be fine. This becomes very important when you get to Tutankhamun's reign, or the reign just before Tutankhamun's. So, pharaohs didn't, as far as we can see, deviate away from this very much, and all their monumental inscriptions are designed to show them preserving March. So, when they show themselves being valiant in battle, that is maintaining March, it is defeating the chaotic foreigners who will threaten Egypt. The Egyptians don't really experiment very much away from this this style of of belief in the kingship because they know it works. They know that the gods like it. They know that the gods are happy with the pharaohs who present more to them. So they're not prepared to risk stepping away from that in case chaos engulfs Egypt and, and everything falls apart.
2: Yes, and I think we can link it to our own society this way because, of course, although mart is a difficult concept for us fully to understand, but it's not not a word that we normally use. Actually, we all expect of our governments the notion of maintaining order. We expect the government to act as the bastion between us and the forces of chaos. this raises up another very interesting concept with the Egyptian king is that they can absorb the identity and achievements of their predecessors. Now, we often use the word usurping a predis- or the term usurping a predis- predecessor's monuments in Egyptian history. And to some extent, it looks like an, aggris- an aggressive and acquisitive attitude towards your predecessors. But actually, as the new king, you are almost really a continuation from a predecessor. So therefore, you just simply accumulate their achievements into your own and proceed on from there. And that maintains this narcotic sense of timeless stability, uh, which of course is reinforced by the whole Egyptian geographical landscape, because there, there must be very few other countries in the world that have such a regularity Of the environment. The Egyptians were very much used to a place where the sun largely always shone, where the Nile always flowed, where it flooded every year. And that reinforces this very powerful sense, this very powerful need of the Egyptian king to maintain that.
1: Yeah, you know, I often say with Mart, we can sometimes feel it ourselves. If we want to do an exam and we've done well in the past using a certain pencil case and a certain pencil and the same routine, we will do the same thing again because we know it worked for us. And it's, it's not necessarily logical, but it's a feeling, isn't it, that of rightness and the danger that if you deviate away from something that has worked in the past, that it might cause you problems.
2: Yes, indeed. But, but, and there is also, of course, a very dynamic force in the 18th dynasty, which is that we have the rise of the chariot-born warrior pharaoh, because something we could throw in here is that the Hyksos people who had occupied the Nile Delta had had the chariot. Now, Egypt had not had the chariot beforehand, and then it becomes a defining trope of the, of the 18th dynasty king the chariot-born warrior pharaoh who is perpetually aggrandizing Egypt's power by invading the traditional enemies that the the Syrians to the the Syrian area to the north and Nubia to the south. And so there's this perpetual um, struggle against Egypt's enemies and the state in in the person of the king creates, uh, establishes, develops the trope Uh, already in Egyptian history, of course, actually, that that he is defending Egypt against these traditional enemies. And these are also the source of the monumental amount of wealth that pours into Egypt in the 18th dynasty, which the king and the, the cult of Amun, which is an integral part of the state, is elaborated huge gifts given to the cult of Amun and then vast amounts spent on the construction of gigantic monuments and temples. And all of these create a magnificent sense of power instability within that. And it's a self-perpetuating cycle. But Egypt never really develops um, a, a policy of provincial government or development like that. Eventually, what happens is that neighbours are no longer willing very much to, to fight with Egypt. They hand over the tribute largely voluntarily until the Hittites come onto the scene. And so it gets bigger and richer and bigger and richer. But you get to Amenhotep III, who is possibly, probably Tutankhamen's grandfather. And it reaches a really climactic era there of unbelievable extravagance and indulgence, but no warfare.
0: And this was a kingdom with impressive international diplomatic connections.
1: Across the Near East, we have a network of kings and vassals. The the policy in the Near East is slightly different. In New it's colonisation in the Near East. It's more like being friendly with these people, exchanging gifts. But the Egyptians will take princes from these Near Eastern states and educate them in Egypt and send them back to rule in favour of Egypt and we get princesses from the Near East and indeed from Nubia marrying into the royal harem so it's all connected and another source of evidence that we haven't mentioned at the moment um, which relates very specifically to the period around just before Tutankhamun really is the Amarna letters which is a series of um, historical documents correspondence that were issued during the reign of Amenhotep III and Akhenaten, and which we can see the diplomatic um, correspondence between these these Near Eastern states and Egypt. It's very interesting, because a lot of them are about exchanging presents. Exchanging presents is very, very important, but they also show us from the lesser, the vassal states, we can see also that they're relying on Egypt to protect them against enemies.
2: It's worth bearing in mind, um, Joyce mentioned the diplomatic letters, there is some evidence from the dating on them. You could expect those letters to take three months to go one way from Egypt to Syria. So a letter and a reply might take you half a year. We're looking at a completely different sort of frame of time compared to us. And I, I, Joyce mentioned that the, the present giving. I, I love it in the letters when you get one of these angry letters from a, a pet vassal king somewhere in the Near East. He's very annoyed because the presents he's been given uh, either haven't turned up or they're not good enough quality. And they get terribly angry because, of course, receiving something flash from Egypt is a way of amplifying their importance. So if they get sent something second rate, they feel diminished and they get very annoyed, for example, if they're not invited to one of the Jubilee celebrations.
1: It's very clear from the amount of letters that Egypt is the dominant power, though. Um, it's something, they are, they are the boss of the world, if you like, the world is centred on Egypt. For example, foreign brides will come and marry into the Egyptian harem, but Egyptian princesses do not go and marry outside Egypt. So they, they're very much directing it. And they have these kings who are almost equal in status, but nobody actually is as, as important as the, as the king of Egypt.
2: Tutankhamun had in his tomb a pair of sandals that have on it one of the Near Eastern warriors and also a Nubian. So he can literally walk around trampling them underfoot. Just as Joyce says, Egypt is the totally dominant party.
0: What were the key centres of power in this period?
2: Egypt has, in its simplest terms a religious capital at Thebes, which we call Luxor today, and that's uh, it, it's taken on a huge amount of prominence because so many of its monuments have survived. And that's where most tourists will visit today. That's where the principal temples and tombs are. And then right up to the north, you have Memphis, which is very close to where modern Cairo is. That was the administrative capital of Egypt. The difference is that Memphis has been largely washed away by movement of the Nile. So there's very little left there today. But it was absolutely uh, the, the epicentre of Egyptian government and administration. But as Joyce um, has explained, uh, also, of course, the pharaoh and his court is moving up and down the Nile continuously. There are various centres, important religious centres and temples, all the way up and down. And of course, the Egyptian kings are forever building at various different places, marking out their presence up and down the Nile.
0: By the later part of the 18th dynasty, Egypt was riding high. It was the dominant power in the region, surrounded by a constellation of tribute-paying vassal states who were too afraid to challenge it militarily. But what did this comfortable position mean for life inside Egypt?
1: It's very interesting, that development away from the military, because looking at it from an outsider's view, and it's nowhere explained, so we're kind of guessing here, the religious aspect of life becomes far more important as the military aspect of life seems to diminish. Joyce, what can you tell us about the religious role of pharaohs in this era? Pharaoh was in charge of all the cults in Egypt, and there were lots and lots of them. Um, the Egyptians worshipped many hundreds of gods. That's, that's a conservative number, probably many thousands, because also gods could combine. So you get a god like Ammon and a god like Ray the sun god. They could combine to be Amon and but Amon could combine with other gods, and Ra could combine with other gods. It's difficult to count them. The interesting thing is that You could almost say it's not a religion it's more like a series of cults there's no set text you can basically worship who and how you want to the state cults are pretty much the 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 concern of the king He will perform the rituals. This is why when we look at the temples of Egypt, it's always the king shown on the walls doing things. Now, we know he can't have actually done every ritual because it would be absolutely impossible. He had deputies, he had priests who did it for him. But basically, the state temples were his concern. And the ordinary people had very little contact with the state. Um, temples but during the 18th dynasty gods did start to process out of the state temples and they would process amongst the people and then go back into the temple And at that point the people could have some sort of contact with the state god for ordinary people they would worship more likely um, their local gods and a combination of ancestor worship and what we might call demigods gods who didn't really have a state temple or a local temple completely different to what the king was doing. But the role of the king in maintaining state religion was very, very important because that is what effectively maintained Mark.
2: Joyce mentioned the processions... It's quite a- difficult, actually, for us to appreciate how fundamental that was almost to Egyptian entertainment. That there are no public entertainments. No Egyptian city comes with a stadium or an amphitheatre. There aren't even mass gathering places. This is quite unlike later cities of the ancient world, uh, even in Egypt, actually. I mean, Alexandria is a, uh, under the, the Ptolemaic Fair. It's a totally different type of place. So, actually, these ceremonial events are mass, Pieces of entertainment and participation in Egyptian culture. This is not a society that has any political representation or expression of protest. Therefore, people are absolutely held within this umbrella. It's really quite a narcotic way of life, which is why when it becomes disrupted temporarily, You can understand just how damaging that is to Egyptian society.
0: So far in this conversation, me, Joyce and Guy have spoken about 18th dynasty Egypt in pretty broad geopolitical terms. Royals, state religion, international diplomacy. But of course, at the same time that all these big historical trends were happening in Egypt, there were also countless people going about their ordinary lives. So what can we say about those who lived under Tutankhamun and his predecessors?
2: Well, it's an incredibly elitist society. I mean, the record is almost entirely dominated by the king and the elite. And the elite are very much tied up with um, showing their relationship to the kings. And I would equate it in some ways to almost uh, take Elizabethan society where we, we we tend to look back at the Tudors. and We're all fixated about the Tudor kings, but we also know about the Tudor elite, who spent a lot of their, a huge amounts of their money on what are prodigy houses in order to impress the king and to show their status. And you have much the same thing in Egypt. I call them the prodigy tombs. So if you go to Western Thebes, if we take somebody called Miré, who is a vizier under um, the end of Thutmose III and during Amenhotep II, this incredibly Powerful man who has a tomb chapel that survives. And this tomb chapel is almost like a mini version of a king. It shows him receiving tribute on behalf of the king, loads of people bowing down towards him, lots of reminders on the wall about how exalted and how massively high status he is and how respected he is. And actually, of course, the interesting thing is the tomb chapel ends up being desecrated because you are looking at a very febrile court, I imagine, with a great deal of jealousy and jockeying for position at the top that's one side of it the
1: emphasis which guy's quite right on the elite it really distorts our perceptions of ancient egypt because we see the good side we see their tombs uh, the elite tombs they tell us their biographies which say how great they are and what a good time they've had being best friends with the king we see the pictures of them that the pictures on the wall are not their lives led, they're the lives they hope to lead in the future, but they're all beautiful sparkling white garments, a shining sun, they're having a great time. We we see their, their um, belongings in their grave goods. We don't see the the more ordinary, darker side of life because a lot of Egypt's um, domestic sites have completely vanished because the tombs are, are built in the desert in in the sand and that they're dry and they've, they're built of stone quite often, they've survived. The domestic architecture is built of mud brick. It's built far closer to the Nile, the River Nile, and has um, basically dissolved into, um, into into mud or has been flattened and built over and built over. So we do get this very one-sided view of ancient Egypt. And um, it's not uncommon for people to have a sort of, in their heads when they picture ancient Egypt, they imagine that everybody lived the same beautiful life, the same beautiful clothes and jewels and so on. And the evidence that we do have for the ordinary people shows that, as we would expect, actually life was quite hard for many people. It might have been better than other places because there was a lot of food available in Egypt. It's a very fertile land due to the flooding of the Nile, which happens every year. But like everywhere in the ancient world, it wasn't a particularly easy place for most people to live.
0: One of the most interesting sites that can tell us more about ordinary lives at this time is the remains of the city of Amarna. Amarna has a fascinating foundation story, which we'll explore later. But essentially, it was established as a new power hub under Tutankhamun's probable father, Akhenaten. And it's proven to be a very revealing site for reconstructing the lives of
2: the less fortunate. From an archaeological point of view, it has yielded the most remarkable body of evidence for the workers. And let's remember that Egypt is built off the broken backs of ordinary Egyptians and untold numbers of slaves who were labouring on all these monuments. The amount of work it takes is gigantic. And when you go to the workers' cemeteries at Akhenaten's new city... What you find is a predominantly very young population, children, very young adults, their bodies largely broken. Most of them uh, show signs of severe physical injury and even malnourishment. And these are workers' compounds which are controlled and guarded. They're building the new city. How representative it is of the rest of Egyptian society over the longer period, it's not so easy to tell because, as Joyce quite rightly says, most of those sites simply don't exist. But what it draws our attention to is that right from the beginning, Egyptian society is all about really the benefit of the absolute elite and shoring up their position.
1: Another development we get at this time is an increase in the civil service. Because Egypt has expanded, it's so wealthy now, it's, it's communicating with, with other lands and so on. There are major building projects going on up and down the Nile and, and the, the Delta that we get a sort of boom in the civil service Um and these are, these are people who are working their way towards being elite. The way to um, progression in life in ancient Egypt was to be educated, and education started off being very, very restricted. But at this point, there is need for more and more scribes, more and more accountants. They're great tax collectors, so tax collectors and so on, and so we also get a sort of booming middle class at the same time that we haven't really seen before. It's difficult to apply modern terms like middle class and upper class elite is is a good term um, because it doesn't suggest birth, which is an, an interesting thing. So we do find out people also making their way into this elite group through the route of being scribes or earlier in the 18th dynasty through military prowess as well. So there is a certain amount of social mobility, but on the whole... Egypt's social pyramid is characterised by having very little social mobility, like Guy's saying. And the royal family do work to keep themselves separate from other people, and one way that they will do this is to have brother-sister marriages. It's not compulsory and not everybody does it, but it happens quite often, and it does have the effect of restricting the royal family.
0: So we have a society dominated by elites, desperate to keep power, wealth and status in their own family's hands. But from Guy's perspective, this went beyond grasping and money-grabbing. Rather, it tipped into all-out exploitation and corruption.
2: I'd like to just jump ahead to the end of the dynasty. I want to go to Horemheb. Heb is a military general under Tutankhamun, but he starts out as a scribe. He's a highly educated person from very modest origins. Now, because of the failure of the royal line... It's Haram-Heb who becomes the king at the end of the dynasty. And during his reign, he issues an edict about reforms in Egypt. It's very detailed. Now, of course, it's rhetorical to some extent. It's in his interest to paint himself as a a reforming pharaoh. But what he describes is a very interesting situation in which the royal court, the harem, and its hangers-on progress up and down Egypt, their officials habitually ripping off local villages, stealing stuff, beating up people. The doing the same thing on behalf of the king. And Horamheb sets out, so he says, to rule out this corruption and, and to institute a whole series of very severe punishments for anybody doing this in the name of the crown. Now, he does hark back to earlier in the dynasty. How true this is, it's difficult for us to judge, but there must have been some truth in it. And by going to him and looking back, we can see how, uh, just as we've been talking, this, this royal family and the elite, they're not only metaphorically screwing over Egypt's neighbours, they're also doing it to quite a lot of their own people. It's a habitual, lazy corruption and exploitation
0: I think that Joyce and Guy have painted a pretty evocative picture of Egypt in this period. A time of international dominance, immense wealth, elite exploitation and a rich religious culture. But that's not the whole story of the 18th dynasty. Because when we reach the generation just before Tutankhamun, there's a twist in the tale. Things changed dramatically during the reign of Tutankhamun's probable father, Akhenaten.
1: Akhenaten comes to the throne, he inherits the throne from his father, Amenhotep III, and for a couple of years he carries on their normal way. He's head of all the religious cults, he shows particular interest in Amun and solar cults, but then suddenly he appears. I mean, it looks sudden to us, it probably wasn't sudden, but to us, it, it on the evidence that we have, he suddenly does a complete change and decides to dedicate himself to the worship of one god, it's a solar disk that shines in the sky known as the Aten. He's not a monotheist in that he allows certain other gods to exist, but basically he focuses on this god and he wants everybody else around him to focus on it too. I'm not sure what he thinks of the ordinary people. I don't think Akhenaten is very interested in the ordinary people, but certainly the elite are absolutely expected to follow his lead. And the old gods... The, the, the old pantheon is just completely forgotten about. And it's it it sounds like a theoretical change, but it's a really, really major change for Egypt.
2: It is indeed. What I would throw in there, yes, of course, he expects the elite to follow him, but also the elite know that if they're going to stay on the patronage gravy train, they've got to join in, because we know that quite a few of them, after Akhenaten, change horses immensely quickly, which shows you that they knew which side their, their metaphorical bread was buttered on. What's extremely interesting about Akhenaten Martin is, um, as Joyce says, he, he kicks off normally. He first tries to build, or does build, a gigantic temple right next to the main Amun complex at Karnak in Thebes. And let's point out, he is doing this very much in association with Nefertiti, his wife. And they build this huge new temple uh, complex next to Amarna. but within a, a short space of time. Uh, he alludes to this, actually, on, on some of his texts. He appears to have incurred some significant opposition. And so what he does, to cut a long story short is he picks up himself, his family and their officials and he transplants the whole thing really halfway back towards where we would call modern Cairo or halfway back to the Egyptian um, administrative capital at Memphis.
0: And here Akhenaten established a new centre of power known as Amarna. Amana, if you remember, was that city that Guy spoke about earlier as an important architectural site for studying the lives of ancient workers. And at Amana, Akhenaten created an entirely new city, and with it,
2: a new set of religious rules. Really what he, can, he creates is almost a corral for his new regime – uh, built round the worship of the Aten, a, a series of Aten temples, the palaces, and as I mentioned earlier, and a huge number of workers are brought in to do this. He erects stele in the cliffs around this city, which demarcate it. They set it out as a kind of a special zone. And from a, a theological point of view, what is particularly interesting is that by expelling the other gods, although there is some evidence of some minor worship of the old gods in some private homes there, what effectively Akhenaten has done is he's changed him and his family into the intermediaries between ordinary people and the gods. They have supplanted all the other gods, and so they pose in what I would call tableau vivant, if you like, of, of, of themselves in ceremonies. It's all about Akhenaten and Nefertiti and their daughters, and the and solar disk bathing them in beneficent rays. And this is a complete disruption. If you think about it from a political and military point of view, politically he has completely knocked out all the influence, importance, and wealth of the vast star moon temples, which have been accumulated for centuries. There's no military campaigning, so there's nothing in it for anybody in terms of booty, warfare and glory. This kind of almost cult-like existence, it's very difficult to identify, and this is partly the passage of time and the lack of the records, where he thinks he's going. There's no march to the promised land he doesn't even have a convenient ideology of death because when members of his family start to die it's quite obvious from the tomb records they don't really know how to handle it and you can see in the tombs of the nobles who are buried there again it's they're bereft of all the other gods who would normally have taken part in the ritual of death he's created huge existential problems for the whole egyptian mentality This is something that's had
0: historians locked in debate for years. What would motivate Akhenaten to embark on such an ambitious or wild overhaul of Egypt's value system? A value system that its society and stability was based on. Was it solely self-interest? Or maybe was something else at play?
2: Well, of course the question is, the, the question we have to ask, Joyce, isn't it? I mean, was he Mad. What's he literally mentally unbalanced? And even if he wasn't to begin with, did he become so?
1: My feeling is that he's working towards his own and his father's divinity. Um, Kings have been semi-divine, you could say, in Egypt and in Nubia more so certainly amenhotep the third his father has been worshipped as as a god i think akhenaten is working very much towards making the royal family divine on earth and he's doing this by expressing this link to the sun god which some experts have suggested might represent his actual father but the trouble is as guys said When Akhenaten dies, it's unsustainable because there's no reason to carry on with it. It's offering nothing to the elite who surround him. There's no real afterlife. They are just going to be like ghosts in their tombs and haunting the Aten temple. And it's not great for people who are expecting to live in the field of reeds with Osiris.
2: Yeah, if we go back earlier in the dynasty, of course, every king, uh, or not everyone, but there's a a number of them, um, articulate the, the trope that they were sired by our moon, who comes to their mother. Uh, in the guise of their father, so that, that this divine element has already been a very important part of it. And yes, under Akhenaten, you have this um, this strange, narcissistic, self-contained structure just around the family. Something I'd like to throw in, though, is it's worth bearing in mind, although there's a great, One of the arguments we could have for several weeks is how old Akhenaten was when when he became king or died, and the jury is very much out on that. But what is certainly true is that he was a relatively young man. He may well have only been in his teens when he started this revolution. Now, there are a lot of arguments about that. A lot of these kings in the 18th dynasty, the majority of them, come to power as children or very young adults. Akhenaten's entire revolution is contained within a relatively short number of years I mean he 's possibly not much over thirty when the whole thing is over. He may not have even have been that old we don 't know um, it 's a remarkable situation to have been involved in
1: yeah, I think it must have been very strange being the Pharaoh of egypt he wasn 't brought up to be Pharaoh. he had an older brother who died, but from that point onwards, he must have known that he was going to be Pharaoh of egypt, and this it 's very hard for us to grasp. It's not just like being the Queen of England today. He had absolute power over everybody. And I guess if you're from a young child, you're brought up with this sense of absolute power You don't question yourself. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, what it would be like? But if you think you've seen the way ahead, you would just go for it. You wouldn't be held back by any of the normal constraints that would hold back anybody else because there's absolutely nobody who can stop you. And everybody around you pretty much has to agree with you. And I find this quite interesting because early Egyptologists who studied Akhenaten tended to see... His religion, as, as Guy has said, as a sort of form almost of Christianity, an early, a forerunner to Christianity, and seeing him as a nice, kind, democratic person, he's bringing a democratic religion to the people. But if we look at the archaeological evidence from Amarna and and we really think about it, he's not being kind at all. He's being very, very controlling, and this is no more democratic than the other religions. It's just different, I
2: think. And, and in that sense, I see him as, as a, a almost a direct product of the whole dynasty anyway. This is an absolute monarchy. And from our point of view, what is so interesting about the 18th dynasty is that we have the first truly historical era in which we can see the despotic absolutist state evolving. Now, Joyce explained earlier on how tenuous, how limited the evidence is, and that is absolutely true. But there is enough of it for us to track a genuine series of historical events and the rise of absolute power. Akhenaten's revolution is only possible because of a state which permitted the king such completely unquestioning adherence and obedience of everybody around him. What is therefore so striking is that it does come to an end. Now, this is often the case with cults when the people who are, are drawn into cults discover that um, the promised land, the, the, the great revelation is not going to come. And it is quite possible. We don't know we don't know, Akhenaten may have been toppled or removed. Now, there's no evidence for that, but there is plenty of evidence from other periods of people like him eventually being removed by vested interests in court. But we know that his reign ends in a very confused period of time, and it's something that Egyptologists have been arguing about. I remember when I first sat down and read a book about Akhenaten 50 years ago, and I read it backwards and forwards, and I couldn't put it down, and I've been reading about it ever since, and I know that the short period of time after Akhenaten's reign has used up more energy than almost anything else. And one of the things that is perhaps a mistake is to believe that there was a definable series of narrative events. I suspect the people at the time were all totally confused by what was going on, that many of them did not know what was going on a few miles down the line. What matters is that whatever happened within a very short space of time, we end up with Tutankhamun on the throne, married to one of Akhenaten's daughters. And that, from the point of view of the rest of the story of the dynasty, is the only thing that really matters, because it really doesn't amount to it. Whatever's happened in that short space of time, he's gone. Akhenaten has gone, and the city is gradually abandoned, and they go back to the old way. I don't think we are ever going to unravel the chaos of that that short period of time between the two. The evidence does not exist to resolve it, and it never will.
0: And that lack of evidence is what makes the period immediately before Tutankhamun's rule one of the most tantalising and frustrating in ancient history.
1: Suit and comes to the throne after I think what is probably a period of confusion, um, not necessarily talking about the royal succession because that is very confused from our point of view. It might not have been confused to the people who were there at the time, but certainly religious confusion, geographic confusion because the royal court is living in the middle of of Egypt, which has never happened before and has been completely isolated, whereas normally pharaohs would sail up and down the Nile and and show themselves to their people. The empire is crumbling because Akhenaten hasn't been interested in it but he's also only about eight years old. There's clearly a lot to be done. He gets set immediately or pretty much immediately on the path to restoring Egypt to how it has been before. And he is promoted or promotes himself as a traditional pharaoh. He wants to go back to how things were and he wants to have nothing to do with the Amarna period. In his mind, he is a completely new beginning.
0: Next week, we'll be jumping off from that new beginning as we look at the life and rule of Tutankhamun himself. We'll examine how his reign sought to shake off the religious reforms of his predecessor, ask how much power the young pharaoh really had, and relive the luxurious lifestyle of Egyptian royalty. Many thanks to both my experts for this episode, Professor Joyce Tilsley and Guy de la Bédier. Guy's most recent book is Pharaohs of the Sun, how Egypt's despots and dreamers drove the rise and fall of Tutankhamun's dynasty. Joyce's latest book, Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, will be coming out this October and is available to pre-order now. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore and Rob Attar.